If you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, there are certain chapters of the Bible that really stand out. Genesis chapter 1 has been one. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 12, 15. Here we are in 22. 22 is a crucial theological chapter of the Bible. But as Christians, God has called us to be disciples, right? And we just talked about how we're going to be having a meeting on that uh, on the 16th. What is discipleship? Well, the word means learner, right? We're called to be disciples after Christ, learning from Christ, walking after Jesus, forsaking all others for his cause and his purpose. When Jesus talked about discipleship, he would say really, really hard things. And he would do it on purpose because all these people were gathering after him. Hundreds of people were following him because their sick were getting healed, right? They were getting free meals. <laughs> and, and if you cook it, they will come. That's kind of the Baptist mantra anyway. <clears throat> but so Jesus would say these hard things to weed out those who weren't really serious about it. And he would say things like, you need to hate your mother and father and even hate your own life if you're going to come after me. He would tell the rich man to sell everything he has and then you can come and be my disciple. And the question we need to come to is, did Jesus really mean those things? (laughs) Is discipleship that costly? We've been following a man named Abraham, and though he didn't know the name Jesus, he's following the same God. And he's called to be a disciple. God said, go, I will show you where you're going. Sounds like a disciple to me. Someone who's following God in faith and only doing what God has told him to do, walking in obedience. And we get to Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham is going to face this hard test. This test that makes us all go, wait a minute. (laughs) What is God doing? Through Abraham's experience, we're not going to cover every detail of chapter 22 today because it's just far too rich. (laughs) There's so much in here. We're going to take at least two weeks. I'm not promising two. Who knows? But through Abraham's experience, I pray that we will see the value of discipleship, of leaving our lives as we know it and following and serving God. Jesus with an undivided devotion. So if you follow along with me, look at Genesis chapter 22. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him 
and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, ages ago you had these words written. But even before that, these events really happened. So first, God, thank you for preserving these words for us. I pray that in our time together in this, you will reveal to us your heart. And in doing so, God, I pray that you will mold our hearts to be like yours. Will you excite in us a desire to know this God? This God who provides. This God who substitutes. This God who tests and sees people come out like pure gold. So God, will your spirit teach us. Forgive us of our sin. Father, may nothing stand in the way between us and your spirit and his knowledge and wisdom for us. 
that we may know you, the only true God of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Abraham live in Philistine country. He's a nomad. He, he has to travel from place to place for the sake of his flock, the sake of his people, his family, his servants. He's made a covenant with the king of the Philistines there so that both are uh, benefited from his living in that land. But most importantly, what we've seen happen in that land is the birth of a son. I mean, for, for 25 years, they've been expecting the son. They've had their very low moments of doubt, he and his wife. But now they have him. And he's been weaned. They've celebrated him with a feast. And he's grown older. And Abraham, Abraham has experienced a joy he has never known before. A joy of being a father, but really having the fulfillment of God's promise in his life. He has a son. From that son is going to come this great nation. And from that great nation, it will be a blessing to the whole world. And though Abraham doesn't really fully understand what that means, he now has that first fulfillment. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go offer him as a burnt offering. God then calls Abraham to the toughest test of his whole life. This is, this is tougher than getting up and moving from your homeland to a place that God will show him. This is tougher than facing famine. This is tougher than facing war with the kings of the east. To, to offer up this fulfillment. The boy I've been waiting for for over two decades. Burnt offerings have been a part of life since Adam and Eve. You remember we talked about how Adam and Eve stood there and watched God slaughter an animal because they rebelled. The first death they've ever witnessed. The first death in all of creation as blood spilt onto the ground that sickening in their gut, knowing this is my fault. And through Cain and Abel and through, we've seen Noah offer sacrifice. We, we know that this offering is being offered all of the time because sin is still present. Though God has judged the world through a flood, it didn't cure sin. Though he has called Abraham out of his homeland to be a man through whom his offspring is going to bless the whole world, that didn't yet cure sin. Sin was still rampant, and so the offerings were needed. But a human? A boy? I know that we're not always given all of the information, but I wonder about the things not recorded. Because it says in verse 3, So Abraham 
rose early in the morning and took off. He rose early and went. It just seems like Abraham leaves without question, doesn't it? I would have a few questions, wouldn't you? And I don't know if I would rise up early. Usually I rise up early to go do things that maybe I'm a little more excited about. Yeah, I accidentally sleep in that day. Not Abraham. Abraham gets up early the next morning, only takes two servants, and he doesn't tell anybody except that we're going to go worship. Definitely doesn't tell the boy's mom what they're about to do. I don't think she'd be too pleased with the plan. But he doesn't even tell Isaac. He doesn't tell the servants. Nobody but him and God knows really what they're going to go do. But it does say, verse 1, that we read that this was a test. After those things, after all the things we just read about, the covenant with Abimelech, all those things, it says God tested Abraham. So we need to look into what a test is. What is God doing here? This seems wrong on so many levels. From a human perspective, this doesn't seem right. The word for test here, used both in the Old and the New Testament, can be translated different ways. And depending on the context, you can translate it test or you can translate it tempt. But we know that God didn't tempt Abraham. Why do we know that? Because the Bible says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when we look at this word and trying to discern how do you translate this into English, what we had to do, or what they had to do, I didn't have any part of it, what they had to do was look at the subject. Who is performing the verb? And that's how you know whether it's a tempting or whether it's a testing. The devil tempts us all the time. Our flesh tempts us all the time. And it's for our destruction. It's for our death. It's to lead us away from God. It is not for our good. But the Lord tests us as you would put metals through a fire. As you would purify gold through fire. You test it. And to test it requires great pain. It requires suffering because that old flesh still clings to us, as the book of Hebrews says, and needs to be removed from us. As fire removes the impurities of gold, the Lord tests us. And the Bible says that when he does so, it is for our good purpose of strength, edification, sanctification, wisdom. Look at these verses, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, just like Abraham, right? We've been declared righteous because of faith. Now we have peace with God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God through Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All that sounds great, right? <laughs> I mean, what a, what a salvation. We could dig into each one of those words and spend, be here all month. Not only that, though, we rejoice in what? Our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul's not the only one to write on that. James does as well. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. What's that blessed mean? Happy, right? Eternally content are those who remain steadfast under testings, trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Literally, the word test means to put someone into a trial. That's what the word testing is. So God doesn't tempt us to sin in that he wants us to fail. God's testing us to purify us, to prove his salvation that is already at work in us. That's what he's doing here with Abraham. Abraham, you follow me. You call me your God. You offer these sacrifices. You worship me. You are thanking me for this boy. Now it is time for a test. I want to prove to you my righteousness is in you. How would you, though, have responded to this test? If you have waited for so long for this child... And now the Lord has issued your son's death. And not just issuing death for your son, but issuing death for your son through your hands. That's what gets me. If the death of your child wasn't enough, you have to do it. It seems unlike God, this whole test. It seems cruel, it seems senseless, but we know that everything that the Lord does is right, and in this we're going to see a glorious outcome. I'm not going to go through every detail in all these conversations because it's, it's for a different sermon. <laughs> but we are, uh, I'm, it seems like I'm skipping things, I promise you we won't. I'm only covering the test today. The Son, the sacrifice, the Savior... The substitute, you like the alliteration? I'm a great pastor. Uh, we're all going to cover that stuff later. Abraham is told to go to the land of Moriah. And in the land of Moriah, there's mountains. He says, when you get there, I'm going to show you which mountain on which you are going to offer your son. So they get there, and he leaves his servants behind, but you, did you notice what he told his servants? You will stay here, 
me and the boy are going to go to that mountain and we're going to worship the Lord and then we'll come back. Interesting statement. For he knows the son's supposed to die up there. Is he in denial of this? Does he maybe just doesn't want other people to know yet? We're, we aren't told in Genesis about Abraham's thoughts through this whole process. We're not told about his emotions through this whole process. We're not told about his reasonings to come to the decision of obedience in all of his actions here in the book of Genesis. We're just, we're just told the details of the story, not the inward working of Abraham. Hebrews does. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. It starts with faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what we're given about Abraham. That's what we're given about the faith. He has to reconcile God's promises with God's commandments. God has promised me that through this son will come a great nation. And he has just issued for me to go up to this mountain and kill my only son. How do you reconcile that? In his heart, and in his faith in who he knows God to be, the only thing he can justify is, well, even if I go through this, God is able to raise the dead. He must. Because my God doesn't lie. My God doesn't deceive. My God doesn't break promises. My God doesn't break covenant. So whatever happens up there, Abraham, I think, was convinced both of us are coming back down the mountain. I can imagine, though, still being human and still being a father, that sinking pit in your stomach as you walked with, alongside your boy. And he's carrying the wood that's supposed to soak his blood the emotional turmoil of sacrificing animals, that was one thing. But the son whom you love, I hope you're hearing the gospel in this. <laughs> it's very plain. To watch your son die, to see his blood pour onto the ground, that's a whole nother level of emotion. That's a whole nother level of worship. But Abraham obeyed because he knew God. God was not like the God of the Canaanites and the Philistines and all the other tribes and lands. Their gods were very fickle. They could be in really good moods one day and in a really bad mood the next day, and you just don't know what God you're going to get. Abraham knew his God, and he knew his God was constant. He knew God was steadfast. He knew God was immutable. He knew his God. 
And knowing his God brought him to obedience. And though he didn't fully understand what God's plan was, he didn't really fully understand why this was even being commanded of him. He just knew when God says it, I do it. Period. No questions. He's the master. I'm the servant. He's the creator. I'm the creation. He's the sovereign. I'm the slave. Boy, our hearts can get that backwards, can't it? We read in scripture and it says, for, you know, pray for your enemies and forgive them and bless them. And we go, God, do you really know what you're talking about? <laughs> do you know who my enemy is? Abraham was convinced that whatever happened on that mountain, God was going to raise his son from the dead. Abraham didn't do this blindly. Okay, get that. He didn't do it blindly. He didn't do it ignorantly. In fact, it was quite the opposite. This was a confident faith in the God he knew and loved. And he knew up to that point God had only been good to him. Abraham was sure of the unchanging power and character of the God he loves. He never calls Abraham into sin, nor into destruction. His ways are always for his good. He chose him. He had saved him for his purpose and pleasure. And though maybe you and I are not sure of why we're suffering today, why are these tests we have to go through today, what are they all for, we can confidently say with Job, who is suffering in the deepest level, I know my Redeemer lives. In all of this, what I don't know, what I do know, keeps me strong. And in that confidence, in Abraham's heart, he laid the boy on top of that wood, and he raised the knife. He didn't hold it up in the air going, okay, God, where are you? <laughs> he was moments away from dropping that knife. And Abraham, Abraham is heard from heaven. Not just once, twice. Abraham, Abraham. Don't touch that boy. Don't do it. We see now the results of this test. The Lord stops him from going through with it. He commends Abraham, and then he allows him still to worship, though, by providing the ram in the thicket. And again, all that we'll get into a lot more deeper in the week to come. And what happened? The two traveled back down the mountain. The two went home together. Mom didn't have to know. <laughs> no, she might. She probably did. But before they do, before they go home, God makes a, this declaration over Abraham. They've been in a covenant together for 30, 40 years. The promises of God to bless Abraham and to make his name great and to give him land and to have an offspring. Listen, they, those promises have been true since the first time God proclaimed them. Genesis chapter 12 there has been no doubt that God would do those things. You see, this test 
was not God trying to figure out if this plan was going to work. <laughs> That's not our God. Our God was in control of all things. He knew what he was doing. His plan was not going to be thwarted. His purposes were always going to come forth. What was changing in this? Abraham. <laughs> Abraham. Abraham was becoming much more like his God through this. You see, the whole ordeal changed Abraham to be more like his God in righteousness. God speaks in a way that is like us, though he's not like us, so that we can understand. So when it sounds like God here learned something, obviously God didn't learn something. He's being shown to us in a way that we get. He, he speaks of himself in human ways so that we can at least understand him a, a little bit. <laughs> if God explained himself to us exactly how he is, for one thing, we wouldn't know the language because the English language doesn't have words to describe our God. Secondly, we wouldn't, we wouldn't understand. So God shows here and says, Abraham, by myself I have sworn, this is verse 15, declares the Lord, because you have done this, have not withheld your son, your only son. Basically, I want you to know I will surely fulfill my end of the covenant. Your end of the covenant, Abraham, was just to walk by faith and obedience. And the covenant has been proved real, proved true. Because look what you just did. And he says that covenant that you have proven through your obedience is true on my end still. Because I am a God who does not change. I am not a God who will break this covenant. Your act of faith, Abraham, is showing that my righteousness dwells in you and that you fear me above all else. This is, this is a different Abraham than we saw back in chapter 12 and 13 and 14. This is a different guy. This is 40 years of walking with God. We call that sanctification. And let me tell you, if you've been walking with the Lord for any number of years, you should be able to look back and go, I am not that person anymore that I used to be. I'm way different. I don't think the same way. I don't trust the same way. I, I don't look at the Bible the same way. I am a different person. And let me tell you, those times in life that change us the most are those times of suffering and trials. That's when we get to know our God the most. And let me tell you, it is no mistake that God sent him to the land of Moriah to do this. The word Moriah is a, a kind of a difficult translation because it can mean two different things. And I actually love that it can mean two different things. <laughs> some people think it means one thing. Some people think it means another. I think it means both. <laughs> Anytime you have ah on the end of a Hebrew word, that's Yahweh. It speaks about the Lord, right? Moriah, that's Yahweh. So in one translation, it can mean that the Lord is my teacher. The Lord is my teacher. Another way to translate it, though, is the fear of the Lord. I think both fit. 
What was this testing that happened to Abraham? He was being taught by God to fear the Lord. Isn't that what God says? That's his first response to him in verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Why do I fear? Because the Lord is my teacher. The Lord brought Abraham to a place, and as a result, his fear of God was perfected through this testing that God brought him through. He adds prophecy, though, to the offspring. You notice that? Verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Your offspring is going to possess the gate of your enemies. The one who tempts, the one who accuses, is going to be defeated by your offspring. The enemy is going to be, how is the world going to be blessed? Because your offspring is going to take down the enemy of the world. You hearing the gospel? I hope so. Your offspring, the Galatians already told us, the offspring's Jesus. Jesus is going to take the gate of the enemy and prevail over them. The gate, he says, remember, uh, I, I'm going to build my church. I am going to build my church on this rock. And the gates of hell won't prevail over it because I'm going to defeat them through my blood. But I'm getting into next week's sermon. Let's get into what this means to us today. First, the gift of righteousness and salvation must be worked out for its full effect. If we are saved, if we have trusted in Christ, if we have believed in Jesus, and we say we are a disciple of His, if we are a follower of Jesus, then obedience has to be included. A true faith is an active faith. A true faith is an obedient faith. And that's what Paul means when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Not work for it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's fear again. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Folks, we can't just claim to be Christians. That doesn't work that way. <clears throat> to be in a covenant with God requires a true repentance and faith. And coming under the blood of Christ and being forgiven of our sin and cleaned of our unrighteousness and the righteousness of God coming into us and that righteousness doesn't stay passive. It doesn't just sit there. 
active righteousness. God's righteousness is active and it does things. So for us to be truly effectively Christian means to walk in obedience to God like Abraham, even when it's hard. And even if sometimes we don't understand why. God didn't explain himself to Abraham because he didn't have to. <laughs> Secondly, the Lord ordains trials to train us in the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't read that lightly because trials are hard and suffering is hard and the emotions and the weight it can take on our bodies and minds or emotions and our spirit is hard. But when the Lord sends trials our way, it's to bring us to a better place. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And as we see that our salvation needs to be worked through, we need to be walking in obedience, and a lot of times that obedience requires trials and suffering. Lastly, those who endure trials are those who know God and his word. It is heartbreaking the number of times I've seen people who call themselves Christians leave the Lord during trials to walk away from the faith, to suddenly not believe anymore because life didn't turn out the way they thought it should. But it says here that those who are truly in Christ Trials will drive them closer to their God and they will become more faithful and more obedient. Look at uh, 1 Peter. It says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, right? When we're knowing God, thinking on God, uh, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The unjust suffering in this context is being persecuted for your faith. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And, that, and he's also talking about uh, slaves um, and masters. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So let's get back to that question from the beginning. Is discipleship have to be costly? The answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. But that which we give up in this world is nothing compared to what we gain in glory. Who we become in Christ God never calls us to walk a road that he didn't endure first. Isn't that comforting? Jesus never calls you to walk a road that he didn't walk first. 
Follow Him. Church, know Him. Love Him and in Him gain His victory. And it's through the trials that we really get to know God. And as Job said it at the very end of the book, as he was taken through the hardest trial I can read about in Scripture, except minus Christ alone, he said, I have heard of you in the hearing of my life, but now my eyes see you. That's what trials can do when we endure in faith. Our Father... This is a tough lesson, but an important one. God, I hope that you, I hope that you help us in, in changing our minds about how we view the things we have to go through. The sufferings and trials of life. Lord, I pray that in these difficult situations, that you will develop in us character and endurance and hope, that confidence of who you are and what you called us to. Lord, I pray that in our discipleship we'll hold nothing back from you, that our own children are yours. Lord, that we won't say, Lord, I'll follow you except if you lead me there. Lord, I'll follow you except if you... Tell me to give this up or that up. Lord, I pray that's not our heart. Because you are so good to us, because of the great love that you've given us through Christ, Father, whatever you say, we will do. Father, bring us to that point. But I, Lord, I know, I, I know what I'm asking. We need hearts that fear you. And as disciples, we need to be taught. So Lord, prepare us for this. That on the other end, we will be pure as gold. We will be in the righteousness of God. Without defect, without defilement, without sin. In glory with you, forever and ever. Walking in perfect, joyful obedience for all time. We long for that day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.